in his commentary on the book of Revelation, David Chilton wrote, the book of Revelation is a covenant document. It is a prophecy, like the prophecies of the Old Testament. This means that it is not concerned with making predictions of astonishing events as such. As prophecy, its focus is redemptive and ethical. Its concern is with the covenant. The Bible is God's revelation about his covenant with his people. It was written to show what God has done to save his people and to glorify himself through them. Therefore, when God speaks of Rome, the Roman Empire in the book of Revelation, his purpose is not to tell us titillating bits of gossip about life at Nero's court. He speaks only of Rome in relation to the covenant and the history of redemption. Just as we have noted now on several occasions since we began this series last fall, this book is the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So as surely as it was not intended to tell us titillating bits of gossip about life at Nero's courts, to use David Chilton's words, it was also not intended in any way to frighten the people of God. And it was certainly not intended to promote an unhealthy interest in the powers of darkness as they find manifestation here in this world. It was also not intended to reveal titillating facts about the state of things in the world today. Some 20 centuries after John wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have noted several times before that the seven churches that are in Asia, addressed by John in chapter 1, verse 4, and by Jesus himself all through chapters 2 and 3, were the primary audience for this prophecy. And that the multiple time cues addressed to those people by the author, for example, when he said the things that must soon take place in the very first verse, and the time is near in both the first and the last chapters of the book, those time cues were spoken to the seven churches in Asia, to the people who were alive at the time when John wrote the words of this prophecy, and these ought to be enough to convince us that even the predictive parts of John's prophecy, those parts that referred to events that were still to come at the time of his writing, even those were meant to be understood, to be interpreted, and to be acted upon by the people to whom he first wrote. We see this in the blessing in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now if in fact the time, as John refers to it, was not near, but at least 20 centuries away, then not only would those words have been completely meaningless to those who first read them aloud and to those who heard, they would also have been untrue. 
John would have been writing, you're blessed if you read this and hear this and keep the words of this prophecy because the time is near, except the time isn't really near. It's, it's going to happen at least 20 centuries from now. To borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And if that thought is appropriate anywhere, it is certainly so when we are speaking very specifically about a promise of God's blessing in a book that was specifically given to show us His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, as David Chilton wrote, the book of Revelation is a covenant document. It was written to show what God has done to save his people and to glorify himself through them. Now this is particularly important as we approach the content of chapter 13, because if we take chapter 13 as an isolated unit, there appear to be only three characters that come into focus here, and none of them are particularly encouraging. There are two beasts, one from the sea and another from the land, and there is also the dragon. But the casual reference to the dragon itself reminds us that there is really no break between the content of chapter 12 and the content of chapter 13, or chapter 14, for that matter. It was in chapter 12 that we were first introduced to a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And the chapter ended telling us that the dragon, who was enraged at the woman, who had given birth to the male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, that is Jesus the Christ, that dragon was unable to overcome that woman. He was prevented from doing so, as Jesus himself promised, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And because he was prevented from conquering the woman, we would not go wrong if we were to call her the bride. The dragon, we are told, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Defined as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he went off to make war on us, on the people of God. Now there's a very real sense in which this is an ongoing saga. And Peter, who knew something of which he spoke when it came to temptation and the attacks of Satan, sought to encourage the church, writing, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That was true then, it is true now, it will always be true. And lion or dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, has been out to destroy the people of God since he confronted our first parents in Eden, and he continues to this day in his attempts to devour and destroy all those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
This, I think, is the reason for the change in perspective at the beginning of chapter 13, although that change in perspective is a little bit harder to see if you're using just about any of the more recent translations. In the ESV, the version that we typically use on Sundays, chapter 12 ends with the statement, and he stood on the sand of the sea, which would connect the, the pronoun there, he, to the dragon. But if you're using one, or even in the NIV, I believe, there will be a footnote that reads something like this. Some manuscripts read, and I stood on the sand of the sea, connecting the sentence with chapter 13, verse 1. And not only some manuscripts, the majority of manuscripts available to us do exactly this. Chapter 12 ends with the words, he's off making war with those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And chapter 13 begins saying, then I stood on the sand of the sea, which doesn't seem like a big deal, and it probably isn't a big deal, except for, as I mentioned, the perspective of the author has changed. Since chapter 4, John has been in the throne room of God, and he has, been see, he has been seeing events unfold from that perspective of almighty, sovereign God sitting on his throne. Well, now something shifts in the book, and what John sees is going to be not completely from that heavenly perspective before the throne of God above, but from the earthly perspective. That's one of the reasons why the judgments seem to sort of escalate. Because before he was seeing them while standing right there by the throne of God with Jesus Christ at, at God's right hand. Now he's down in his perspective on the earth. He is standing on the sand of the sea. He is standing figuratively or symbolically on that dividing line between Israel and the Gentile world, represented to us by this beach. And as he stands there, as did the prophet in Daniel chapter 7, John has a vision. He wrote, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And if you can remember to what I read about the dragon in chapter 12, notice the similarity. They are not identical, but in some ways they are very much alike. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's the dragon that fiery red dragon of Revelation chapter 12, that old serpent, the devil, who gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now, as in the book of Daniel, this beast is a kingdom. More specifically, it's an empire. It's not just a man. And Daniel also gives us the key to interpreting this vision. In his dream, he saw four of these beasts. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 7. The first three represented three world empires, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece. And then Daniel saw a fourth beast. And he describes this fourth beast as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, 
It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And, maybe not surprisingly, it had ten horns. In Daniel's vision then, we understand this fourth beast to represent another world empire, and specifically the world empire that supplanted the Greeks, so Rome. And in Revelation, we are looking at that same beastly empire that Daniel saw in chapter 7. And in addition, further confirmation of this will come when we get to chapter 17, where we will discover that the seven heads of this beast are symbolic of both seven hills and seven kings. Pastor and author Douglas Wilson has written, Rome was known in the ancient world as the city of seven hills. And just as we recognize the Big Easy as New Orleans or the Windy City as Chicago, so first century readers would have known instantly with the reference to the seven hills that we were talking about Rome. And there is so much more that needs to be said here, but it's going to have to wait for the return of our Bible study this evening at 7 o'clock. For now, just remember, this beast is primarily an empire, not a man. In some ways of interpreting the book of Revelation, this beast has been cast as the Antichrist, with the definite article the Antichrist, the man of sin, referred to in Thessalonians. But it, we'll, be, we'll be talking more about that this evening. But it's an empire. It's not a man. It's an empire, and it represented something which was a very clear and present danger to the original readers of this prophecy. Verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Remember, he's writing to the seven churches in Asia in the first century. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. But wait, there's more. In John's vision beast from the sea is joined by a beast from the land. And the beast from the land looks like a lamb, which the lamb we've been seeing all through the book of Revelation is, is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Well, this one looks like a lamb. He has the two horns of a lamb, but he speaks with the voice of a dragon. And again, this particular beast does not represent a certain man, but represents the institution of apostate religion. Religion that has sold out to the dragon and to the beast who exercised authority on behalf of the dragon. And while the concept of the Antichrist is not really found in Scripture, John, the author of the Revelation, at least the human author, wrote of this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He wrote, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come already in the first century. Therefore, we know that it is, present tense, in the first century, the last hour. John goes on, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They came from the same fold, from the church, from Judaism. And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And then 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, a little later in that same book, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This, this spirit that is not from God, this spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and has come in the flesh, this spirit, this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, John writing to readers in the church in the first century. And the spirit of Antichrist, these Antichrists that John said had already come, this is the spirit of apostate religion. That religion that was speaking with the voice of the dragon, Satan, calling the people of the land to give their allegiance to the Roman Empire. And as we read through the Gospels and through the book of Acts, we see that kind of unholy alliance between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and Rome. Even just before the crucifixion of Jesus, we find Caiaphas, who didn't know what he was talking about, who didn't understand what he was talking about, agreeing that it was good for one to die for the good of the people. That's why Jesus should be turned over to the Romans. And we read of how Herod, the sort of pseudo-Jewish king of Israel and Judea, became became fast friends with Pilate at the time when Jesus was condemned to die. See, it was the Roman authorities who actually drove the nails, but it was the religious authorities who delivered Jesus over to be crucified by the Roman authorities. There's more that we have to deal with this evening, and we will if the Lord is willing. But one more thing for sure this morning. According to Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, this beast from the land causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So, the mark of the beast, as we heard, referred to so many times. 
but I want you to pay close attention to what that mark is. John goes on to say, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now over the years, this apparent mystery has bewildered and frightened a lot of people, even Christian people. Is this a simple number tattooed on the forehead or the hand? Is it just a straight up 666 or, you know, on the hand? Or is it some kind of a barcode or a QR code of some description? I've read that too, that there are people who think, no, they're going to tattoo you with, with a barcode that a universal reader could scan. Things along those lines. More recently, I have heard some evangelicals speculating that perhaps this mark of the beast is something as generic and unrelated to the text that's on the screen as a vaccine passport would be. But listen to John's next words and remember, this message was intended for people in the first century, specifically for the seven churches in Asia. He wrote to them first, just like Paul wrote to the church at Philippi first. And we can learn from that. But we learn from it best when we understand that it was addressed to real people in a real place in the first century. And we learn best from the Revelation when we keep clear that it was spoken to them first. So speaking to them, John says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Understand in the manuscripts that are translated to the New Testament, 666 is not a number. It's spelled out in Greek letters. So it's not like, oh, well, it's a number, and that number is going to be put on somebody's head or hand. Now, we ask the question, could a first century reader, even one with great wisdom, calculate the number of the beast if that number was something that did not exist in the first century and would not appear on the scene for over 20 centuries? Does that make sense? I should have written down the quote, but Douglas Wilson in his book and in a video that we will eventually watch says, imagine Demetrius of Philippi, you know, awake all night long, hovered over the scrolls, trying to exercise wisdom and to calculate the number of the beast. And in the morning when his dad gets up, he says, Dad, I, I figured it out. I've calculated the number of the beast. But and in Wilson's illustration, he says, who is Henry Kissinger anyway? You might say, who is Barack Obama? Or who is Justin Trudeau? If the number of the beast was something that was not going to show up for 2,000 years, it would not make any difference whatsoever how much wisdom that first century church had. They would not have been able to calculate anything. 
So doesn't it make more sense that we, who are alive 2,000 years later, ought to learn to calculate in first century terms? And we will go further into this this evening. But for now, I hope it's enough to say that in the ancient world, these symbols that we know as letters also served as numbers. You're familiar with this if you ever tried to figure out the Roman numerals at the end of a movie. L, X, X, P, What is that? Why didn't they just use numbers? But a long time ago, they didn't. They used letters, often from their own alphabets, to signify numeric symbols. Now in our language, we have this weird system which works quite well, where we use Latin or Roman letters to communicate the English language, are numbers. What we know as numbers are actually Arabic characters. So they're still letters. They're just letters from a different language that most of us don't know. Now if you take the name Nero Caesar from the Greek and you transliterate that into Hebrew, and you use the numeric values that were assigned to each of those Hebrew characters, I guess, what the value of that number, the number of that name, works out to? It works out to 600, three score, and six, 666. Because in this way, that a discerning reader could calculate the number of the beast. And John would have written like this because this book is going to be distributed through the Roman Empire. And you can question things, but only so far. If you're going to name names, if you're going to talk about Nero and say he, as this grotesque, evil emperor of the Roman Empire, comes to represent the beast, you don't say that in your outside voice. You write it in code, which is what John did. And if you have a study Bible, your study Bible may have a footnote telling you that some manuscripts, instead of saying the number of his name is 666, say the number of his name is 616. That's not a mistake. It's worth at least a mention that if you begin with 616 in Latin and transliterate that into Hebrew, it still adds up to Nero Caesar. The mark of the beast is the number of a man. It is the number of a name. And his number is 666. Why does this matter? Why did I spend so much time here? Because I mentioned a little while ago all the speculation about who is the beast, when does the beast come, what is the mark of the beast, all of that has led to a lot of fear. When I was a kid in junior high and high school, books like Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth were hitting the stands. We were afraid. We were afraid that maybe Henry Kissinger, if you're old enough to even know who that is, really was the beast of Revelation. 
and that somehow this mark was going to be something that wouldn't be so easily identified, like a 666 on your forehead, and maybe you could actually take it by accident, and all of these books that were coming out at that time indicated that if you received the mark of the beast, you were damned. There was no salvation for somebody who took the mark of the beast, and, and we were scared. There were movies, A Thief in the Night stands out as one that I saw when I was way too young to be watching that kind of false doctrine. They were scary movies. Well, here's the final answer, and this is why I spent so much time on this. The beast of Revelation 13 is the Roman Empire. And the mark of the beast was the number of Nero's name. He was the first of the emperors to engage in a relatively severe persecution of the church. And he was the emperor who sent his general Vespasian to reduce Jerusalem to a pile of rubble. In the end, it was Vespasian's son who finished that task. But Vespasian, who would later become emperor, was sent by Nero to do it. And the mark of the beast is ultimately just a symbol of the sort of worship that was required by the imperial cult as summarized in the declaration, Jesus is, not Jesus, excuse me, sorry, that was a terrible mistake. Um, I had to back that one up. The mark of the beast is symbolic of the kind of worship that was required by the imperial cult and it was summarized in the expression, Caesar is Lord. And this is what got the Christians into so much trouble. Because all they had to do to go into the marketplace and buy and sell to be members of the trade guilds and to function as good citizens of the Roman Empire was every now and then, I've seen different numbers, once or maybe twice a year, they had to take a knee at a statue of the Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. You didn't have to believe it. Nobody can make you believe something in your heart. You just had to say it. And they wouldn't even say it. Because they knew in their heart that Caesar was not Lord and never would be. But there is one Lord. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that light, the mark of the beast could not be received accidentally. I know this from the things we've already looked at this morning. I also know it because as the scene unfolds in chapter 14, John, who I believe is now in the spirit, standing on the sand between the land and the sea, and he sees these beasts coming up, the Roman Empire and false apostate religion, and the dragon who is at work through that two-pronged pitchfork, if you want to think of it that way, to accomplish his purpose in the world. Having seen that, though, John raises his eyes from the earth and looking to Mount Zion, known in Hebrews chapter 12 as the heavenly Jerusalem, that is, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. John looks to Mount Zion. He looks to the church and listen to what he sees because this is the portrait of Jesus that ends this difficult section. John said, Then I looked, and behold, 
on Mount Zion, not earthly Mount Zion, on the spiritual Mount Zion. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. We met these people first in chapter 7, one of those I heard and I saw moments. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes. And I turned and I saw a great multitude whom no man could number. And they were sealed. All the way back in Revelation chapter 7, we learned that they were sealed. And here, in chapter 14, we find that that seal is the name of God himself. The Lord knows those who are his, the people of God, whose names have been written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, have been marked with the Father's name. And they, we, have been raised up with Christ, seated with him. And here in Revelation chapter 14, we stand with him on Mount Zion and we sing a new song. This is the picture of Jesus standing with his redeemed people, with his church. And again, there is nothing here, not beasts or dragons that should make us afraid. I'm going to borrow some words from Pastor Matthews sitting right over there at the front. He said in his sermon on this text, these beasts sound powerful, big, and scary. And yes, they are. Lambs sound innocent, non-threatening, and vulnerable. But don't be confused by this. The Lamb on Mount Zion, Jesus the Christ, is more powerful than any beast. Thank you for those words. And if you are a child of God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you need have no fear whatsoever of beasts or marks of the beast or any of that stuff because you have the name of God the Father engraved on your forehead. You belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death. Your name was written from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. And God knows those who are His. You don't have to fear the beast or his mark because you stand victorious with Christ. And that's why James brother of Jesus regarding this dragon, this great fiery red dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, he wrote very simply, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Very simple, two-fold program a spiritual warfare. Submit to God. Resist the devil. 
And because the devil is already a defeated enemy, he will flee. So in the light of Christ's victory, we are called, we are commanded to be sober, to be vigilant, to be watchful. And we are called to resist. In this fight, we are called, according to Ephesians chapter 6, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. When you got out of bed this morning, you stepped into a battle, stepped into a war zone, as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us. Third question from the end. Our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. We maybe don't like to hear that the world, the flesh, and the devil are out there and that they never stop attacking us, but like, like it or not, this too is the word of the Lord. So be vigilant. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And having done all, stand firm. Because lions and leopards and bears, these beasts described by Daniel and by John the Apostle. They seem ferocious, but we stand with the Lamb. We stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion, sanctified, sealed, and singing a new song before the throne of God above. You should go without saying, Rome is gone. That beast is gone, and it's not coming back. And Nero is only a name in dusty old history books. A lot of our young people probably don't even know who he is. So the outcome of all of this is decidedly not, absolutely not in question. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lamb, our Savior, Jesus, and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, where we have been anxious, fill us with hope. Where we have been fearful, give us your confidence and courage. Enable us, Lord, in the grace that only you can give to fear just one thing, to fear you, the living God. And to understand that if we fear you, that's the beginning of wisdom. <coughs> And if we fear you, we have nothing to fear in heaven or on earth or under the earth in all of this universe. Because you have promised that you will be with us always to the very ends 